Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm John Fusco. And I'm Eric Lures. It is February 1st, 2018, and on this week's show, two historic and surprising Sundance deals, Red's out-of-this-world new censor, Will MoviePass's risky strategy pay off? And as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hello, everybody. We are back in downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School, here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. I want to say, you might have heard at the top of the show, a special welcome to Eric Lures, who you've met on the last couple episodes and will now be joining us as a regular co-host of Indie Film Weekly. Hi, Eric. Hey, thank you. I'm very excited and nervous and uh, all of those things that come with something like this. So if anyone has any complaints, feel free to send them directly to Liz and uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll go from there. But I'm very excited to get started. Thank you. Awesome. We're happy to have you. So you all might be hearing the vestiges of a Sundance cold in my voice. Um, and we also have vestiges of some Sundance news for you. So I will kick off with that. There's been a flurry of acquisitions activities since last week's bottom line. So I'm going to start this episode with a Sundance bottom line part two. No sooner did we talk about what a slow year it was for acquisitions at Sundance than an historic purchase was made for a VR project. Yes, Spheres, Songs of Spacetime, directed by a brilliant friend of No Film School, Eliza McNitt, and executive produced by Darren Aronofsky, became the first ever VR project to ink a seven-figure deal at the festival. The rights to the three-part VR series were purchased by a new distribution company, City Lights, with plans to premiere on Oculus Rift later this year. A few days later, the first VR documentary acquisition ever at the festival happened. The multiplayer doc Zeker, a Sufi revival, directed by Gabo Aurora and produced by Jennifer Teixeira, was picked up by traditional doc distributor Dogwoof. Interestingly, their deal includes funding to support additional development, part of which would be an online version that allows multiple players to be networked at once into the experience from around the world. So, distributors are buying VR, and they're trying to figure out how to get it out there. Now, it was a very different story for movies. According to Forbes, last year distributors spent more than $107 million bucks acquiring the rights to films they plan to release. Netflix led the pack, picking up at least 10 titles and shelling out over $36.5 million to do so. Then again, according to Variety, Only four Sundance 2017 acquisitions made more than $4 million at the domestic box office. That may be part of why the amount spent on this year's major purchases was only a third of 2017's total. In addition to the few buys we reported last week, Bleecker Street and 30 West spent a reported mid-seven figures for U.S. rights to Wash Westmoreland's period drama Colette. Side note, we mentioned last week that 30 West had purchased a controlling stake in the upstart distributor Neon, and it was since announced that in the midst of the festival, 30 West hired Sundance programmer Trevor Groth, who'd been with the fest for 24 years. These moves show that 30 West is keen to be a serious player in indie distribution. Annapurna inked a low to mid seven-figure deal with worldwide rights for one of my festival favorites, Boots Riley's absurdist comedy Sorry to Bother You, Another Oakland-based drama, Blindspotting, was picked up by Lionsgate for $3 million. 
Incidentally, the debut director of that film, Carlos Lopez Estrada, also directed one of the festival's indie episodics, High and Mighty, whose creator will be on our indie episodic podcast. And a couple more buys worth mentioning. HBO bought one of the festival's most talked about dramas, Jennifer Fox's The Tale, starring Laura Dern, who really seems to be having a moment. The well-established Sony Pictures Worldwide Acquisitions, which is usually more active at international markets like Cannes, made four purchases, each in the neighborhood of five million bucks. Search, which we mentioned last week, plus Deborah Granick's drama Leave No Trace, Mark Turtletaub's Puzzle, and the Nick Offerman starring Hearts Beat Loud. We reported last week that theatrical subscription service MoviePass was getting into the acquisitions game at Sundance, and the company made good on its promise, partnering with The Orchard to buy North American distribution rights to Bart Layton's heist thriller American Animals for $3 million. Of course, the big news is still that, as far as we've heard, not a single purchase was made by Amazon or Netflix during the festival. Now, we already talked about Netflix's aggressive release schedule of originals. On the Amazon side, it seems that the company will be shifting its focus to blockbuster-type content. For example, Variety reported that Jeff Bezos himself negotiated a deal for a series adaptation of The Lord of the Rings with an estimated budget in the $250 million range. For projects that might be more in the range familiar to our listeners, we may need to rely on programs like the Amazon Film Festival stars if we want to work with the company. That program was more designed for festival films that don't get bigger distribution deals and want to self-distribute on Amazon, offering one-time cash bonuses up to $100,000 and a preferential royalty of $0.30 for every hour the film is streamed on Amazon Prime. And with the 2018 Sundance Film Festival officially in the books, uh, you should definitely take our advice on which films to seek out, but you should also take Sundance's advice too. Last week on the show, we discussed the short film Sundance Award winners, and now we're back to go over the feature-length films at the festival that nabbed a prize at last Saturday's award ceremony. Hosted by comedian Jason Mansukis, who I interviewed for the site on the occasion of his starring in Hannah Fidel's The Long Dumb Road, the award ceremony singled out the best of the 123 features that screened over the 10-day festival. I'll mention a few of the awards winners right now, all of which we either recently covered at No Film School with written interviews or upcoming podcast episodes. Of note is that the Screenwriting Award, the U.S. Grand Jury Prize, and the Top Two Directing Awards each went to female filmmakers. Woohoo! So, to run down just a few that you can read about on our site, the U.S. Documentary Directing Award went to Alexandria Bombach for On Her Shoulders, which follows Nadia Murad, a young woman who survived genocide and sexual slavery committed by ISIS, the U.S. Dramatic Directing Award went to Sarah Colangelo for The Kindergarten Teacher, an American remake starring Mag- Maggie Gyllenhaal of a 2015 Israeli film. The World Cinema Documentary Directing Award went to Sandy Tan for Chirkers, a deeply personal and celluloid-infused story about the winding road her first feature took 25 years ago in Singapore. The U.S. Dramatic Waldo Salt Screenwriting Award, which is a beautiful name for an award, <laughs> went to Christina Cho for her tension-filled identity mystery, Nancy. The U.S. Documentary Special Jury Award for Social Impact went to Stephen Mang for Crime and Punishment, which looks at police officers' illegal quota practices and their impact on young minorities. And the U.S. Documentary Special Jury Award for Creative Vision went to Ramel Ross for his deeply moving and highly experimental Hell County this morning, this evening. Other big winners included the U.S. Grand Jury Prize for Drama, presented to Desiree Akavan for The Miseducation of Cameron Post, 
And the U.S. Grand Jury Prize for Documentary was presented to Derek Donin for Kailash. And there were many more awards given out on that evening. And as always, you can find the entire list of winners over at No Film School. I don't know if you guys uh, remember when we talked about like trends uh, that we saw at Sundance last year or this year, I guess. Um, and I said documentaries turning into features is sort of a trend. And then like also this week it was announced there was a doc at Sundance about uh, Mr. Rogers called Who's My Neighbor? Yeah. And then like three days later it was announced that Tom Hanks is going to be playing Mr. Mr. Rogers. Rogers. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's not even it. a social issue, but you were totally right. It's yeah. a total bellwether. Won't You Be My Neighbor, I think was the name of the doc. And yeah. people really liked it. I'm, I'm just, like, Tom Hanks, what a perfect Mr. Rogers. The nicest guy playing the nicest guy. Absolutely. And shout out to Mariel Heller. Uh, this will be her second feature after uh, Diary of a Teenage Girl, I believe. Um, yeah, so that's she's a, got another one coming out this year. She does, that right? I put okay. on our most anticipated list. It's going to be a hot year for Mariel oh, Heller. Yes, she, uh, with um, Bridesmaids. Yeah. Melissa McCarthy. McCarthy. <laughs> with Melissa McCarthy. Uh, so this will actually be her third feature. I'm just hoping that... Mr. Rogers doesn't have a very dark backstory. I don't um, think he does. Okay, <laughs> okay. I just hope not. I just hope not. I, I sure there'll be one act that goes into a dark, dark past. Um, I legit couldn't handle that. On top of everything else this I mean, year, <laughs> it's just a man looking for neighbors wherever he moves to. Like we actually find the behind-the-scenes story. He has to tell people that he's moving into the neighborhood because. Oh, he's, oh yeah, he's on a registry. Yeah. Oh, see, I knew this would happen. <laughs> a nice uh, guy registry. All right, let's move on. Uh, so MoviePass, as Liz was saying, had a uh, some big news at, at Sundance. It was one of the biggest deals out of Sundance this year, which wasn't necessarily a big deal because of the size of the deal. It was a big deal because of who was making the deal. So as Liz said, they bought American Animals. And this wasn't a complete surprise because at the start of the festival, MoviePass had announced that it was looking to buy films and was hoping to partner with a more traditional distribution company. It had even talked to studios about partnering on a deal to purchase Blind Spotting, but that film ultimately sold to Lionsgate. American Animals hit Sundance with some strong buzz and left with even stronger reviews. It was directed by Bart Layton and stars Evan Peters and Barry Keoghan, the kid from Killing of a Sacred Deer. And the film follows two childhood friends as they plot to steal priceless Audubon prints and rare books from a special collections library. Only a day or two after the purchase, however, one MoviePass subscriber tweeted, Quote, about 12 people trying to use MoviePass in the lobby of AMC Empire 25 NYC, and it claims we're not 100 yards from the theater. WTF. Which means what the fuck. And I uh, I remember Ryan Koo and I were both on the plane when this news broke, and we were both looking at the story at the same exact time, and we're like, uh-oh. And it turns out that it wasn't just NYC. More Twitter complaints rolled in. One user in Los Angeles tweeted, No more AMC Century. That is truly disappointing. I canceled my membership because of it. Others expressed the same sentiment. Now, New Yorkers, I don't think, will be too upset <laughs> that a theater in Times Square is being dropped from MoviePass. But in I mean, e- yeah, there's another theater right across the street, so yeah. we should be fine. And I don't, not too many New Yorkers actually like to go to Times Square uh, for any reason when you have many other movie theaters at your disposition. MoviePass CEO Mitch Lowe made an official statement that read, As of today, you'll find a small handful of theaters are no longer available on our platform. He advised customers to always double-check the MoviePass app for the most up-to-date list of participating theaters. But another part of the statement seemed to broadcast a message to AMC. 
Quote, our number one goal as a company is to provide an accessible price point for people to enjoy films the way they're meant to be seen on the big screen. Many exhibitors have been receptive to this mission, and we're excited to keep working with theater chains that are closely aligned with our customer service values. So now MoviePass seems to be at war with AMC. But when AMC sent out their response, they insisted the blame should not be put on them. Quote, some of our guests say MoviePass may be blocking the use of their service at a handful of AMC locations. AMC has not restricted MoviePass acceptance at our theaters, nor have we heard from MoviePass about this. MoviePass customers should contact MoviePass for clarification. For anyone who doesn't know, MoviePass's strategy is that they charge $10 a month to subscribers and then pay theaters full price for every ticket. This is why it's largely been welcomed by independent theaters, or at least tolerated by the big chains. AMC, which is America's largest theater chain, has been the exception, and it denounced the service immediately following the new price announcement. So is this retaliation on MoviePass's part for AMC's naysaying? In his article for Gizmodo, reporter Rhett Jones speculates that after a surge in subscribers following lowering their rates to $10 a month, MoviePass's risk has not only paid off, but they are now also in a position to bully around exhibitors. Their bigger strategy is coming together, Rhett writes. Quote, MoviePass wants to strong-arm uncooperative theaters into sharing revenue when it demonstrates increased sales. It wants to own some films that it acquires based on its user data, and it'll push those films on its app with the highest priority, and ultimately collect TV and streaming revenue on them. And the company hopes to incorporate businesses that are near theaters and promote deals in a sort of Groupon for movie theaters arrangement. Will it work? Well, with over 1.5 million subscribers and representing 3% of all tickets sold at the box office, it seems like there's at least a demand, and it's one that won't be going away anytime soon, in my opinion. And now here's Charles Hain with the gear news this week. Hey everybody, welcome back from Sundance. So our biggest news in the past two weeks was that RED released their new Gemini sensor. So it's a limited run of only six, which is sort of a bummer, but it was designed specifically for a single client, and even though most of us won't get to use us, it's so cool we had to talk about it. Basically, the Gemini is designed for work in space. In space, there often isn't a tremendous amount of light, which is why, like back in the 60s, Zeiss designed special lenses that opened all the way up to a 0.7, which are obviously what Kubrick used on Barry Lyndon. So one way to get exposure in low light is a wide aperture, but another way is a faster sensor, and that's what RED did here. They have boosted the sensitivity a full two stops over their normal helium sensor with the new Gemini. They do this by using larger photosites, which are capable of detecting smaller amounts of light, the same way that, like, if it's raining and you put out a larger bucket, it's going to get more rainwater in it because it can respond to a smaller amount of water. So this is only going to be a 5K camera, but that's still actually kind of a really impressive resolution for a low-light camera. And if you, you like red imagery, which obviously a lot of us really do, a red camera that's a monster in low light is super exciting. I think a lot of filmmakers would be willing to sacrifice the resolution and only shoot 5K in exchange for two more stops of sensitivity. So it's kind of a shame they're only making six of these. But maybe the footage will be so great and there'll be such a push from all of the fans of Red that they'll make more of them. Um, what I'm really excited to see, you can rent those Kubrick Primes from Joe Dutton in London. So I'm hoping somebody will rent those 0.7 Zeiss Primes and stick them on the Gemini and we'll get some amazing low-light, ultra-clean 5K footage. So there's only six of those being made. Are they all being used in space? So 
they have one client who's buying it yeah. for space. The rumor on the internet is that it's Elon Musk, but Elon Musk doesn't keep stuff secret. Mm. So, like, why would that be a secret? Like, he would have tweeted it with a flamethrower. So, uh, my guess is either NASA sneaking behind Cannon's back or it's Bezos, because Bezos shoots stuff in the air. And Bezos is way more secretive than Musk. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other five have been sold, but uh, nobody specifically has been confirmed to be a space person from the other five. Do they know who the other five are, or is that I don't know, but I bet I would be shocked if it doesn't show up on ShareGrid or KitSplit somewhere sometime soon cool keep an eye out yeah red gemini if any of you see it for rent let us know i think we'd be really excited um next up dji has updated their mavic line Uh, 18 months after originally launching it they've come out with the new mavic air so there was a misleading leak the day before which we didn't cover because we we try and avoid leaks with a crazy 400 price point which isn't what it turned out to be. It was actually an $800 price point, which makes way more sense because they already have a drone that usually sells around $400, which is the Spark. But the thing you get out of the Mavic Air that you don't get out of the Spark is you get a 3-axis gimbal for the camera and you get a 4K sensor. So you don't have to like point the drone, right it. The drone doesn't have to fly and shoot the same direction. You can like pan it around while you're shooting, which is a big benefit for filmmakers. So this is more filmmaker-focused, while the Spark is more consumer-focused. The big exciting feature is how small it packs up. It's crazy small. It packs up to, like, the size of a large cell phone. It's got some cool new obstacle avoidance technology, so if you have it turned on and you try and fly it at a tree, it will automatically avoid the tree. And they also have a new extended optional warranty. Usually optional warranties are a racket, but Apple Care has actually always been great. And I actually think for drones, extended warranties are probably a good idea, especially if you're a filmmaker because we're really hard on stuff. Um, Mavic Air, very exciting. Shipping, I think, next month. Super cool. Uh, Last but not least, we couldn't make it all the way through without talking about Sundance. So most interesting of all was that Ari totally dominates even at Sundance, which is like the indie festival where you would think some of the other cameras would have a big platform. 90 projects were on Ari. The second place finisher was Canon with only 37, less than half, and then 28 were on Sony. Despite coming in second place in the camera body contest, the most popular lenses were Canon, though. Surprisingly, especially to me, I mean, obviously, I really like Panasonic, but only one project was on Panasonic. But hopefully the EVA1 coming out this year, we'll see that number change a little bit on Sundance next year. Yeah, I actually talked about that a little bit last week, but uh, we were, you know, we wanted to hear your input on it. And uh, you seemed especially bummed out about this whole Panasonic business. I mean, I'm just like super loyal legacy to Panasonic. The The surprising thing for me is how little Red was there. Oh, yeah. Because like, re- like Red is the indie darling and Alexa's more expensive and Alexa's harder to get our hands on and there's still less of them around. So I, I mean, look, obviously Alexa looks great. Everybody loves Alexa. If you can get your hands on Alexa, totally fine. But I was really shocked that it wasn't even in the top three. Yeah, I don't know. Last week when we were talking about it, uh, it, it to to my point, <laughs> I used an Alexa on my short, and you know it was actually pretty easy for me to get a hold of one. So just through like rental house, uh, through Ari's own rental house, and maybe that's just because I'm in New York, and uh, but they happen to be like really helpful in in getting me whatever I needed for a pretty cheap price. 
I guess um, the volume's finally there where there are enough Alexas around. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, they got me, they didn't get me a mini. They got me just an old XT. XT, maybe. Yeah. Well, they haven't changed the sensor. It's the same sensor yeah, for the last 10 it's years. The same and sensor. it still looks just as good. Yeah. So that's what I was thinking. I was thinking, like, since Red doesn't really have, they don't really have any rental houses per well, se, right? Can you rent from Red Studios in LA? I don't know. They have a studio where you can buy stuff. I wonder yeah. if you could rent. It would make sense, and they uh, they should probably get on that because it seems like a lot of indies are just using Alexas now, which is great for them, um, but not great for Red. Yeah, interesting. Although the the one thing Red still does offer is crazy slow mo, way more slow mo than the Alexa. So I bet a lot of those jobs that were like a camera Alexa had a B camera Red for slow mo work. Hmm. Yeah, like Game of Thrones does that. A lot of people do that. So I, I wonder if we did a B camera list. Yeah, that's one of the other things that we were talking about last week was because, you know, Panasonic doesn't really show up anywhere. I was thinking, well, is it because, like, so many cinema Sony cameras were being used and then they could use, you know, the A7S or whatever as B cameras? Yeah. You think that's why? Because there's no, like, true, aside from the EVA, which we're not going to see until, I guess, next yeah. year. Um, that's why Sony's more popular you think i also think because vericam was so popular in tv yeah and is newer like the alexa you shot on was like eight years old oh yeah and because alexa it's one of those weird things actually where because alexa hasn't changed their sensor because they're like our sensor's good we're not going to change our sensor until there's something better 10 year old cameras are still viable rental options that people are excited to shoot on whereas red innovates so much so fast that, like, I see people, like, I am totally, I did a job on Red MX a couple of years ago. Like, I don't, like, the Red cameras from 2011 are still great, mm-hmm. but but because Red has so many newer things, maybe people look down their nose a little bit at it in a way that is probably unfair. I mean, they still shot 4.5K. They were still great. But, yeah, people, it, people I think, maybe are like, if I'm not on Monstro, I'm on nothing. Yeah. Well, they're innovating so quickly and they're pushing things forward so fast that some of their older equipment is maybe not popular. Yes, exactly. There you go. Because, yeah, I mean, you would, like, if you were given the choice between an eight-year-old Alexa and an eight-year-old Red, you're going to pick the eight-year-old Alexa. Yeah, no no doubt. But the p- choice between, for the same price, a brand-new Alexa and a brand-new Red, tougher choice. Tougher choice. A lot of people would still go Alexa. Yeah. <laughs> 90 people still went Alexa at Sundance. Yeah, it's so. crazy. It doesn't seem like uh, there's that much of a competition anymore. I don't know. Well, if you look at the Academy Awards and at Sundance, it doesn't seem like it. You still see a ton of red in music videos. Yeah. Well, and they're they're cheaper. They're cheaper, and you get crazy slow-mo, and you can do all that crazy. You know, it seems like at this point, half the music videos I know of just shoot everything at 96 frames and then yeah. speed parts of it up so that they can speed ramp whenever they want. So you're seeing it there, and you're seeing it at high frame rate capture at the studio level. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, it's something to keep an eye out on. Yeah. Uh, next year, this year. And uh, thanks, Charles. Oh, my pleasure. See you guys next week. And now for Ask No Film School. Lena, a documentary filmmaker, wrote to Ask, I have been submitting my new film's treatment and got feedback that the trailer and written pitch are not convincing. So I'd love to take a workshop or participate in a lab and learn new ways of doing it. She was hoping we might be able to point her in the right direction. What do you say, Liz? Well, first of all, thanks for the question, Lena. I think this is something a lot of people wonder about, whether they're making docs or narratives. 
Of course, I have to start by sending you to our own site, nofilmschool.com, where we have lots of up-to-date resources on pitching and funding. I actually did an entire podcast with three really smart guests back at the Camden International Film Festival in September called Pitching Do's and Don'ts, How to Get Your Film Funded. So that's pretty straightforward. And Oakley wrote up a panel of producers and financiers from South by Southwest that was more narrative-focused called How to Pitch Your Film, a Step-by-Step Breakdown. So we will link to both of those in this week's podcast post. That would be your most immediate and cheapest solution, but there are lots of resources that might be more hands-on or where you could explore your specific case. Of course, there are consultancies like Feedback Loop that exists solely to help with doc strategy, And there are big public pitch sessions like the one at the aforementioned Camden, the Sheffield DocFest, the IDFA Forum, or the ones held in multiple cities by the Good Pitch Organization. You could apply for some of those, and if you get in, most of them will help coach and evaluate your pitch materials before throwing you to the wolves. Even if you don't get accepted to them, it's worth attending if one takes place near you because you get to hear other people's pitches and see their funding videos and then hear the reactions to them by some of the industry's biggest greenlighters. Some of last year's pitches might be streaming online now, so it's worth a quick Google search. There are also many documentary labs that will work with you on your funding materials and strategy, and I encourage you to apply to them, but just keep in mind that they're quite competitive and they happen throughout the year, so this wouldn't necessarily be like an immediate solution. But some that come to mind are, of course, the Sundance Documentary Labs, the Points North Fellowship, and the IFP Doc Labs. Eric, you used to work on those labs at IFP. Do you have any thoughts? Uh, Yeah. I mean, from my own experience going through the labs, uh, Something that filmmakers always seem a little unsure of is really how to talk about their project and the right kind of keywords, as dirty as that kind of sounds, but just kind of struggling to really speak about it with someone else. So the more you can kind of get that really practice and rehearsal to make it as concise and as clean as possible, um, then that that will be very beneficial to you. Um, Meeting with potential investors, programmers, sales agents, distributors, etc., you're going to really have it down pat by the time you go through it enough times. And, you know, just try it out with with colleagues and friends, and they're going to really ask you questions from that point on and wonder why the feedback they're giving is not necessarily apparent in your initial pitch. So kind of thinking about it from the audience's point of view, and sometimes brief, being more brief and concise is a positive. Uh, no need to kind of give it all away uh, right at the start. I think that's a really good point. If you are practicing your pitch with just friends or colleagues, they won't necessarily know how to give you critical feedback on it. But listen carefully to the questions, the clarifying questions and follow-up questions that they ask you, because those might point to like where there's sort of a weak spot in your pitch. That's great advice, Eric. So, Lena, thanks for the question, and now go get that money. And now moving on to movie openings that are happening this week. On Netflix, you can check out The Hurt Locker on February 1st. Catherine Bigelow was the first and last woman to win an Academy Award for Best Director, and it was given to her for this effort on the film back in 2010. Greta Gerwig's nomination for Lady Bird this year makes her only the fifth woman to ever be nominated for an Academy Award, so they're both part of a very small and elite club that will hopefully be growing soon. In total, the film won six Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, Best Editing, Best Sound Mixing, and Best Sound Editing. The war film, which takes place during the Iraq War, follows a sergeant recently assigned to an army bomb squad that's put at odds with his squad mates due to his maverick way of handling his work. 
Jeremy Renner was nominated as Best Actor for his performance as said Maverick Sergeant. A powerful documentary that Eric and I put on our list of 10 most politically explosive docs of the year is also available on Netflix now. The Force is Peter Nix's second film from a trilogy in which he investigates the interaction between a community and its institutions, sort of like a real-life The Wire. The first one, The Waiting Room, showcased a day and night in an Oakland hospital emergency room. But in The Force, Nix and his team go inside the Oakland Police Department with impressive access to document a difficult period in 2014 when the department is being federally monitored for misconduct and civil rights abuses and police around the country are being scrutinized and held to account by the Black Lives Matter movement. The documentary doesn't really take a side as much as it shows us verite glimpses of just how complex and emotionally charged the issues surrounding modern policing are, and uh, I recommend it. And hitting HBO on February 1st is Man on the Moon. If any of you took the time to watch Netflix's documentary Jim and Andy in the past couple months, you should be happy to hear that the movie on which it is based will be hitting HBO as of tonight. It, of course, is the great biopic based on the life of comedian Andy Kaufman. Jim Carrey stars as Kaufman and famously went ultra-method for the role. Kaufman was a hero to Jim from a young age, so he tried again and again to play the part. And then Carrey stayed in character for the entirety of the film shoot, both to the malign and delight of his cast and crewmates. And that's uh, what Jim and Andy is about. So if you haven't seen it, you should check that movie out too. Man on the Moon is directed by Milos Forman. And coming to theaters on February 2nd is A Fantastic Woman. This is one of five... Oh, I'm coming to theaters? Uh, <laughs> Man on the Moon, I'm coming to theaters? Are you are you a transgender uh, person? Well, no, but oh. I'm a fantastic woman. Okay, I see. This is also one of... Also a force. Gotcha. Are you also a Man on the Moon? We're recording in a Hurt Locker. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> we are. I can attest to that. And so, anyways, Fantastic Woman is one of five films nominated for Best Foreign Picture in this year's Oscars. It comes from Chile. It also won the Silver Berlin Bear for Best Screenplay and the Teddy for Best Feature Film at Berlin All. It was written and directed by Sebastian Lelio and features a stunning breakout performance from a trans actor named Daniela Vega. That's why I asked if you were trans, Liz. Not because I actually have my doubts. I don't. I know you're a fantastic woman. Okay. Vega plays a waitress who moonlights as a nightclub singer that ends up depressed by the death of her older boyfriend. Do you have an older boyfriend, Liz? I have a younger <laughs> boyfriend, obviously. It's an interrogation podcast. <laughs> Hurt Locker. Moving on to brighter news. Some excellent grant and opportunity deadlines. The HBO Access 2018 Directing Fellowship has a deadline on February 7th. My mom's birthday. Happy birthday, Mom. Uh, In an effort to expand the ranks of underserved voices in the entertainment industry, HBO has launched the HBO Access program in partnership with the DGAA. The program will provide mentoring, education, and the ability to shoot a short presentation for HBO. The program selects diverse directors to participate in masterclasses focusing on pre-production, production, and post-production. Each participant will be paired with an HBO development exec who will serve as his or her mentor throughout the process. And upon completion of the week-long series of masterclasses, each director will be assigned a script to shoot for possible airing on various HBO platforms. Pretty cool. Yeah, actually, when speaking with Christina Cho, um, the director of Nancy at Sundance, she had mentioned that she went through that very program in 2013 
and with Ryan Coogler, who, of course, has a pretty huge movie coming out in a few weeks. And they were shadowing directors on Boardwalk Empire and a couple of other HBO projects. And that's how she met C. Buscemi, who wound up being the lead in her film. So it actually does go far, depending on what you make of that program. Next, we have the CAM Documentary Fund with a deadline of February 1st, which is today, actually. Uh, so get that in as soon as you finish listening to the podcast. Uh, the Center for Asian American Media will award between $15,000 and $50,000 for public television-appropriate programs. Documentaries are eligible for production or post-production funding and must be intended for public television broadcast. All funded projects must grant 2CAM exclusive domestic public television rights for no more than four years for no additional fee. This means that it must premiere on American public television before any other television broadcast. And the Screen Australia Documentary Development Program has a deadline on February 2nd. If you're looking to develop an Australian documentary or co-production, you could get up to $30,000 for development from Screen Australia. Screen Australia's Documentary Development Program assists experienced documentary makers to achieve planned outcomes for the development of their projects. So this could include further research, writing the next draft of a script or treatment, strategic shooting and or editing to attract marketplace development, or production finance, or compiling a sizzle reel. Any of those things you can get money for. And now moving on to festival deadlines. The Sidewalk Film Festival has a deadline on February 1st. This takes place from August 20th to the 26th, 2018 in Birmingham, Alabama. It was repeatedly recognized by Movie Maker Magazine as one of the top 25 festivals in the world and by Time Magazine as one of the top 10 festivals for the rest of us. There are multiple cash prizes of up to $1,000. Sidewalk has also announced this year that they'll be having a side right competition with categories for feature-length screenplays, short screenplays, and Alabama screenplays. Do those have an accent? Get it? Oh, oh, oh. Like Alabama screenplays, they have an accent because it's Alabama. The so- Anyone? No. Okay. I, I actually don't. Get it. <laughs> it's in the South. You know? <laughs> so in addition to cash prices, winners are offered travel assistance and table read opportunities during the festival weekend. The Chagrin Documentary Film Festival has a deadline on February 5th. Wait, I have to interrupt. I mean, every we've had many episodes where we talk about these like poorly named contests and festivals, but like the Chagrin Documentary Film Festival, like, yeah. they're just letting you know right now these films are depressing. Well, obviously intentional because, yes, the festival does play, take place in Chagrin Falls, but it's not the Chagrin Falls Documentary Film Festival. Right? It's just the Chagrin Documentary Festival. That is sad. So it does take place in Chagrin Falls, Ohio from October 3rd to the 7th, 2018. And I think, you know, as funny as a name as it is, it's the place where the dude from National Lampoon that was highlighted in A Feudal and Stupid Gesture is from. What's his name again? Doug Kenny. Doug Kenny, yeah. So there's a lot of talk about Chagrin Falls these days. It's time to capitalize on it. This is the early bird deadline. It was named to Movie Maker Magazine's prestigious list of the top 50 film festivals worth the entry fee for five years in a row. Last year, they had an attendance of over 12,000 people. And prizes totaling $15,000 will be presented, including a $5,000 prize to the best of the fest. The Oak Cliff Film Fest has a deadline on February 7th. It takes place from June 14th to the 17th, 2018 in Dallas, Texas. This is the early bird deadline. The festival has received national acclaim from prominent sources, including the New York Times, Filmmaker Magazine, and Movie Maker Magazine. In fact, Filmmaker Magazine said, quote, simply put, it's among America's very best small film festivals. And if you're full of chagrin from the previous festival, you can go ahead and jump right off the oak cliffs. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so really, you have to be in somewhat of a depressive state to uh, to apply to any of these. But they're very worthwhile and very good. So it is now time for our weekly words of wisdom. At the top of the show, I talked about the historic purchase of Eliza McNitt's spheres. Fun fact, I interviewed McNitt, and she talked about how cool it was to be at the festival with executive producer Darren Aronofsky, particularly as his movie Pi, which was also a science-based project, had debuted at the festival and won him a directing award exactly 20 years before. So, my weekly words of wisdom also comes from her interview. She talked about the scientific inspiration for her project, which takes us inside a black hole. She said, quote, One billion years ago, two black holes collided, and they sent out this gravitational wave, which has been passing through space over billions of years, stretching the fabric of space and time. Whoa. And, for the first time, we heard that signal here on Earth. So that discovery is what has really transformed science, because we now understand that instead of just looking out through the eyes of telescopes, we can now listen. And that expands our imagination so much deeper. End quote. So aside from exploding my mind a little bit, I took away from this that filmmakers really should look for inspiration everywhere, not just from other films and media, but from everything around us and from different fields, like science, where discoveries are constantly happening that might spark story ideas. So this past Sundance was my first Park City experience, and so throughout the festival, I enjoyed talking to several first-time feature filmmakers, or, or even short filmmakers, who were still very much in awe of, one, having completed their movie, and two, having it premiere at one of the most prominent film festivals in the world. Uh, both of these things were obviously major achievements, and on the ground in Park City, they were still very much processing just how they did it. And you were kind of walking through a excited, shocked, amazed uh, state as you're really overtaken by the experience. In the next section of Sundance, Clara's Ghost represented the debut feature of director Bridie Elliott, daughter of Saturday Night Live stars Chris Elliott and Abby Elliott, who co-star in the film, and producer Sarah Winshaw, two colleagues who first met as employees at Kim's Video here in New York City several years back. They first attended Sundance in 2016 as filmmakers with their short that Bridie wrote and directed and Sarah produced called Affections. When I interviewed Sarah and Bridie for Clara's Ghost, and I, being their debut feature film for both, I was very interested in what that experience was like. When asked what she learned from that experience of producing her first feature and on getting it into Sundance a mere five months after filming commenced, uh, they shot in September and October, and by January they were in the festival, uh, Winshaw reflected, I feel like it was the most amazing and probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. And I'm still learning things about what I will never do again and what I must do every time. I keep going through the feeling of, I can't ever do this again, and then being like, of course I'm going to do this again. And that's where I'm at. Uh, I just thought watching a filmmaker vocalize that out loud as they're processing it was really interesting throughout the festival for me. Did uh, did Sarah, Sarah mention me at all? Ew, I, I don't want to so. know. No, what did I mean, you do? I just had her on the podcast like, oh, really? a year ago. So you had that mysterious look on your face. All right. Well, and we know you like, went to NYU with all those actors. Anyways, it's cool to... I, will, I can follow up. She's uh, She was on the podcast uh, at South by Southwest where she'd produced a short called Whiskey Fist, yeah. and she sat down at a uh, short roundtable I did there 
Um, and then like yeah. a year later, she's talking to us again with a feature at Sundance. So did she mention me at all? I didn't know. I didn't know. We went to the new <laughs> school together, uh, like eight years ago. So it was very. Uh, I don't know. I could, I got to bring up all these names. Reunion. Small world. Exactly. She's she's grown too big. Now she. You know, who are we? You know. Well, I'm John Fusco, and <laughs> my words of wisdom this week are that I don't know if you guys have heard me talk about this movie yet, but I saw a movie at Sundance called Mandy. Uh, have you heard about it? This movie. A few times. Okay, well, the film was directed by this really cool dude named Panos Cosmatos. He previously directed another really crazy psychedelic film called Beyond the Black Rainbow. It took eight years for him to come back with this new film, so it was sitting inside of him, ruminating for a long time. But he was blessed enough to have an incredible cast to work with for Mandy, including Nicolas Cage and Sundance multi-film person Andrea Risenborough. When I interviewed him, he said something about actors that I really liked. Quote, To me, actors are the most magical creatures in the process of making a film. You spend so much time alone when you're writing. You're inside your head creating these characters and imagining them and trying to give them life. When the actors enter into the process, however, they always invariably have their own ideas and approach to it, which are always super amazing and enrich it so much more. It's always a pure joy to watch something that you've built in your mind, almost like a model kit, actually transform into a fully breathing person, you know? So I cannot continue to stress this enough. Be good to your actors and treat them like you treat the rest of the crew. They have solid input. Too many times I've been on sets or talked to my friends at film school who place actors at the very, very bottom of the stepping stool. Don't do it. Listen to Panos. They contribute a lot and are great. So, if you are in New York City this weekend, there's a pretty cool opportunity to attend the inaugural Animation First Festival. We've talked a bunch on the show about the animation renaissance, and of course the French have a rich tradition of innovation in the field. So Animation First is the first ever French animation festival in the U.S., and it will be showcasing 12 premieres and cool programs like a screening of erotic animated shorts because, you know, France. You can learn more at FIAF.org. And after the weekend... I'm super stoked on next Monday's podcast. I always love our DP roundtables, but this one's especially cool for a couple reasons. One, between the four women in the conversation, they have a whopping nine projects at Sundance. And secondly, two of the participants were more experienced. Actually, one of them, Shana Hagen, shot the first five seasons of Survivor, so she's pretty badass. And the other, Claudia Rashka, has 45 cinematographer credits to her name. So then the other two participants are more like up and coming. So the group had some pretty insightful discussion kind of between themselves. And it's always fun when the group takes over and just starts addressing each other. Um, It should be a really useful episode for both DPs and directors. So look out for that on Monday. We need to have like a case study of the production of Survivor. I feel like that would be incredible. Just like how they, I assume, lived on the island with the players you know I, I feel like I have a friend who's absolutely obsessed with Survivor and now they're up to like season 36 or something I feel like they do two seasons a year so I would really I mean it's a good idea a lot of our colleagues here in New York who you know they, they do their paid work by working on um, reality shows which are more based here in New York than they are in LA and uh, it would be interesting to like you know actually hear more about what that hustle is like it's pretty hard work I understand yeah anyway in the meantime, uh, thanks for listening. You can 
catch up on everything we talked about and get links to all the opportunities we discussed, plus lots, lots more about the craft of filmmaking at nofilmschool.com. Uh, we love it when you subscribe to the podcast. It really helps us out, especially when you give us some nice ratings and comments on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. And of course, stay in touch on Twitter. Say nice things to Eric. Yes, at Liz's Twitter account, though. Remember that. Don't direct <laughs> them towards me. Liz will take all of the feedback and complaints. I love complaints. I don't. Um, <laughs> but if you want to send anything my way, especially nice words about Eric and maybe John, not just Eric, my Twitter's at LizFilm. You can say nice things to me at my Twitter account if you want to, or complain. That's fine, too. At Jim underscore John underscore Jim. <laughs> and mine is very, very creative, uh, at Eric Lures That's on Eric Twitter. with a K. That is Eric with a K, and that's Lures with an L. <laughs> Charles is at Charles Hain, and we are all at No Film School. Thanks, guys. See you next week. <laughs>